But first, the big story continues to be the one that is emanating from the United States Supreme Court, that leaked document, uh, uh, the brief saying that Roe versus Wade might be overturned. Uh, Yeah, women's rights are on the line. Here's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau laying down his position on body autonomy for Canadian women. In Canada, every woman has a right to a safe and legal abortion. Last year, we put forward $45 million to help uh, organizations that fight and support women's reproductive rights. Uh, we've in, uh, we've uh, invested in uh, research and studies uh, that make sure uh, that access, which we know is can be uneven for women across the country, is better understood so we can make sure that all women have full access to the full slate of reproductive services wherever they live in, their con- in this country. So a lot of the pushback when many women in this country watch what's happening in the United States and think, we all need to stand together because women's rights are human rights, right? Ever since that U.S. Supreme Court leaked brief hit the news cycle, the discussions about what overturning Roe versus Wade in the U.S. might mean here. Lots of concern that it's a slippery slope that might see a turning back of the clock when it comes to body autonomy for women and the right to choose what we might do with our bodies. And the pushback we get, many women get, has included, hey, we're not the U.S. True. Thankfully, we're not. Still, we are not immune to losing strides made over decades of social evolution and For those who fight for sexual health access for all women will point out how here in Canada, there are still big gaps in access. And to talk us through this, we welcome, very pleased to welcome Nicole Pasquino to the program. Nicole is a clinical practice director at optionsforsexualhealth.org. Thank you so much for being here, Nicole. Hi, Jody. Thanks for having me. Such an uncomfortable conversation for many to to talk through and and really lean into and listen to, but it's so important that we do. Can you lay out to us where we fall short here in Canada when it comes to the challenges of access accessing abortion uh, for Canadian women? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, it is a hard issue to unpack and you know uncomfortable, but it's something everyone, not just women, should be talking about. Equity is a huge component of care. While we've made tons of strides in Canada and abortion is accessible, equitable access still isn't there. So women face a lot of barriers like financial, geographic, you know, things like precarious immigration status, where you live, moral and religious barriers. All these things really impact how women can access these services within their communities. So where must we focus our uh, microscope, our spotlight? Where, where are the gaps? Yeah, I think... You know, whenever we talk about accessing gaps and service and things, it's really easy to think we're uh, urban, you know, like we think Vancouver, okay, we can just go down the street and get one. But really, we need to focus on the people who face the most barriers. So, you know, people living in rural and remote communities, can they physically access abortion? Can they get there? Is it culturally appropriate? Is it safe? Do they have providers that meet their needs? You know, many providers are only English speaking, women with disabilities. How do we access those services for those people? And just navigating the healthcare system in a way that people can quickly get what they need without being delayed, which is a huge issue in abortion services. We actively see organizations that um, get a lot of funding independently that will delay women trying to access these services. So it's, 
you know, trying to meet those needs of the most vulnerable populations is how we make things more equitable. So can you unpack that a little bit for me, if you don't mind, the, sure. the, the, the delay piece, like somebody's getting funding to delay yeah, so, access yeah, to this. Yeah, so that's, you know, that falls really in that moral and religious barrier uh, piece. You know, we have things in Canada called crisis pregnancy centers, and often you'll see them, like, there's big billboards that'll say, like, are you pregnant? Do you need help? Everyone's seen those, right? They sit on the bus ads or on the street, um, you know, the street benches, and, you know, they they're present themselves as wanting to help women who are pregnant, but they're actually not medical centers, um, and they provide bias counseling. So, um, what they'll do is they'll bring someone in and they'll never refer them for abortion or contraception. And so often it delays women's access to getting into the healthcare system and getting into the system that's actually going to serve them and provide them with access to abortion. Which brings us to sexualhealth.org. What is sexualhealth.org and what might somebody find there if they are feeling that crisis situation? I need help and I don't know where to go. Yeah, so so sexualhealth.org is, I'm not familiar with that website, so I'm going to look it up right now while I'm sitting here with you. Are you talking about our website, optionsforsexualhealth.org? Yeah. Oh, so I, <laughs> yeah. Oh, wait, I got your website wrong? Sorry, it's in my, it's in my notes here as that. What's yeah, your no website? Yeah, no problem. So it's optionsforsexualhealth.org. Options. And yeah, and so Options for Sexual Health is, the Planned Parenthood affiliate in British Columbia. And so what we do is we provide, uh, you know, sexual health information and referrals to clinics. Uh, we operate clinics throughout the province. So we operate in about 50 different communities. And if someone comes into us, um, they Google us and they find a clinic and they come into us, we'll provide them with all the counseling that they need. And, you know, it's really important to remember that when someone comes in and they have a pregnancy that maybe isn't something that they're really sure about what they're doing, we're not just going straight to abortion, right? We provide them with all of the counseling that they need. You know, some people want to parent, adopt, have an abortion, whatever they choose, that's not our job to influence them. So they'll come in and we'll talk to them through kind of what services are available and how they can get to access to community and their needs. If people can come to the clinic, we have a phone line. It's called Sexant, so people can call it. It's open every day from nine to nine, except on the weekends. And they're really good. We have um, we keep we do our best to keep a list of all the available abortion providers in the in the province of British Columbia. You know, it's hard though because accessing abortion in communities where maybe there are a lot of uh, moral, religious, or anti-choice attitudes can be really hard to navigate. So, calling somewhere like Sexant is a great place to start because. People will be able to find out, you know, where there's a provider that's actually going to serve them in their community. And I, I think, Nicole, we're with Nicole Pasquino, who's a clinical practice director at optionsforsexualhealth.org. Uh, Nicole, it's really important for people to understand that this isn't, as you said, a direct line to abortion. This is a direct line to women's health and women's Absolutely. sexual health specifically. And the options that are available and the supports that are available in Canada are very real. It's just knowing where to go and how to access it. Yeah, and finding the right people, right? So if you're a vulnerable yeah. person, like a 14-year-old youth, and you walk into a clinic and you know, you're not welcomed or accepted or it's not culturally safe or the people there don't treat you the way you want to treat. How, how are you going to access into that system, right? So often what mm-hmm. we'll see is it takes people a long time to navigate or they hear through their friends or they find out through someone else in their community. And, you know, a lot of communities, even something like medical abortion, if you have to pick up the pills at a pharmacy where, say, your auntie works, is that going to work for you? Probably not, right? Mm-hmm. So we have yeah. to try and navigate the system in a way that people feel safe, they have the ability to access the care, and they really get the information they need to make their own decision. It's all about making your own decision. It's not about what anyone else wants. 
And interesting, you bring up the morning after pills or the, the abortion pills. There's a story out today that those there there might be restrictions put on those in the U.S. and that might increase the demand here in Canada as U.S. providers try and look for pills elsewhere, north of the right. border. Right. Is there concerns about that? I mean, we haven't heard much of that yet. I think there's a lot of concerns about if there's restrictions in the U.S., how does that impact us? You know, so abortion tourism is a thing, right, where people will come across our border because we are on a land border to access a better service or a service that they might not be able to access in their community. So anytime that we see these kind of restrictions in the U.S., we worry, you know, we worry about are we going to be able to serve the people? Not not do we do we want to? Of course, we want to serve everybody. But how are we going to be able to meet the demand? The clinics are already super busy. You know, the major clinics in, in, in uh, Vancouver are already super busy. The phone lines are super busy. And we want to be able to meet that demand and access. And really what we need to see is, like, every primary care provider, every family doctor, everybody working together to ensure that the people that need the service get the service. And I just wanted the morning after pill, right, is emergency contraception. And that's something that we use maybe if someone's had unprotected sex in the last five days versus misoprostum, which is the um, abortion pill, which you can use up to 10 weeks. There's a lot to learn about <laughs> sexual health and options for sexualhealth.org is a great resource. Uh, Clinical Practice Director Nicole Pasquino, I really appreciate your perspective today and, and pulling so back much. the veil on this on this taboo subject. It's it's the conversation that needs to happen. And, and I really do appreciate you uh, being so upfront on it and, and, and sharing your, your learned perspective. Thanks, Judy. I really appreciate you bringing this to the front. Jody Vance in for Mike today. Remember when we were all asked to download the government COVID-19 app in the name of contact tracing? Well, it seems that there was more data gathered than what we were told. The ethics of this is being challenged. We have lots of questions about this, uh, not the least of which what this information was used for, uh, what possible outcomes were, were, uh, were received by PHAC to better mitigate the COVID-19 pandemic. And we're two years into this. We've got more restrictions, more lockdowns. Uh, were they just simply finding out that people were going to Costco or were they using this information for purposes that were going to help in the pandemic? At least on the surface, it appears to me two years into this that we're not not any further along, and how is that information helpful? As John Brassard on tracking, the conservative critic for ethics and accountable government and the committee is on this file, has brought back, in fact, 22 recommendations as to how Canadians deserve better privacy protection and be given the option to opt out of being tracked. Joining us on the line is James Bazan, a MP for Selkirk, Manitoba, and a member of that standing committee on access to information, privacy, and ethics. Thanks for being with us, James. Thanks for having me on the show, Jody. So let's dive into exactly what is happening here with regard to whether or not Canadians are allowed to or must opt out of being tracked on our smartphones. Is it as... Um, Big Brother-like as it feels? So when the committee undertook the study uh, earlier this year and uh, just reported back to the host uh, last week, um, we discovered that the government uh, during the initial stages of this pandemic through 2020 and early 2021 uh, had contracted with both Blue Dot and with TELUS to track the movement of Canadians as it relates to 
the public good of trying to track COVID. And um, essentially, we're collecting metadata on how people were moving around. Um, <clears throat> so the problem with this is that, one, Canadians didn't know about it. Two, is that there wasn't proper consultation with the Privacy Commissioner to ensure that uh, the privacy of Canadians uh, was being protected. And three, we know that um, in, in a lot of areas where you have lower populations, you cannot necessarily guarantee that the data that's being collected cannot be attributed to individuals. And uh, so that uh, incentivized committee uh, to undertake this study and make recommendations to the government to protect the privacy rights of Canadians. And then we, and part of that recommendation process is amendments to le existing legislation, legislation like the Privacy Act, like uh, PEPIDA, and um, to, to ensure that individuals uh, are not being tracked and are given the opportunity when that the government is being transparent and informs them that they are collecting this information underneath the Personal Information Protection Electronic Documents Act. And secondly, is that Canadians are given the opportunity to opt out of these programs that are essentially being used by the government to inform uh, public policy decisions. So this is going to make people very hot under the collar, as you might imagine, James, because there are so many of us who challenged as to whether or not these COVID apps that were being asked to download in the name of public safety, we challenged as to whether or not these were going to utilize our data in a way that might uh, impact our privacy, let's put it that way. And now it seems like that is the case here. Um, the accountability piece seems like um, one, I don't know, one that's really going to frustrate the electorate, if you will, uh, just regular citizens across the country. When we find out through these reports that people are being tracked when whether or not they're going to Costco or whether or not they're going to the liquor store, like what does that have to do with COVID-19 uh, beyond the sort of geocaching of where in the city or where in their community they might be going, but the specific locations, it all seems very big brothery. It is, and well, we've asked as committee that uh, there be a complete moratorium put in place until um, there is legal guardrails in place to protect the privacy of Canadians. And <clears throat> as it stands right now, the contracts that were in place with TELUS and Blue Dot, um, those contracts expired in March. So essentially, you know, there, there was a call early January by the committee uh, asking the, uh, the government not to be uh, collecting this mobility data. And uh, the government didn't necessarily fulfill that, but they did lot existing contracts and tenders to expire. Uh, so there isn't any data being collected at this moment from the standpoint of Public Health uh, Canada. But uh, even if PHAC is, is, you know, collecting this data, they still need to be working with the Office of the Privacy Commissioner to ensure that Canadians' privacy rights are being protected. And that's the one thing I think that stuck in the craw of most of us on committee is that, you know, they told the Privacy Commissioner that they were going to be doing this, but they didn't ask the Privacy Commissioner to uh, overview and provide uh, recommendations on how the program should be set up 
to ensure that the privacy rights of Canadians were not being violated. Must be quite something to sit on this committee. We're with James Bazan, MP for Selkirk, Manitoba, member of the Standing Committee on Access to Information, Privacy and Ethics. I want to go back to the fact that we were told up front that our data would not be collected in this way. What might the fallout be here? As you say, you know, the Canadians have a right to know if our data is being collected, if our movements are being followed, and and that we have an option to opt out of such things when told, no, 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 we're not collecting your, it's totally anonymous, we don't know, you know, we got we got sold a bill of goods there during the early days of this pandemic, and now we're finding out that it, it, it went much deeper. And, you know, I, how do we opt out now? Is that possible? Is that an option for us? Or is it, is it over now? Well, what we're saying at, at this point in time is that all the data that was collected has to be uh, destroyed. So that yeah. um, any of that information that could be discerned as to the movements of individuals uh, has to be uh, completely um, deleted from government records uh, electronically and uh, hard copies as well. So we've uh, asked for that to happen, and uh, we've been assured that the government, that's common practice. However, you know, we we still want to make sure the government follows through on that. Uh, Secondly is, um, you know, I think that's coming out through the recommendations, and we hope to see the government uh, introduce it, is, is that they will put in place the proper controls through legislation and regulation to make it legally and binding, um, that there is complete transparency, that Canadians are informed when these types of, uh, of, of programs are being instituted, and that Canadians are given the ability to either accept those terms and conditions or decline participating in these, whether it's happening through mobility data, whether it's happening online. Uh, we just expect that the government um, will give Canadians the ability to say no and uh, mm-hmm. that they have to have a process in place that educates raises public awareness that provides the opportunity um, uh, with, to, to the public to, to, to either make the choice to opt in or opt out. And uh, at the end of it, um, that they have to have both meaningful consent on collection transmission and use of that data. So the Public Health Agency of Canada used data from cell towers to track 33 million mobile devices, and they said it was a way to assess, quote-unquote, population mobility patterns. So is the lesson here, James, is the lesson that we need to have uh, changes to our privacy laws so that the de-identified information and aggregate data are considered personal information subject to that privacy protection? Yeah, and uh, that's exactly what the committee has recommended, is that there would be amendments made under the Privacy Act and under the Personal Information Protection Electronic Documents Act so that they become more modernized and are able to protect Canadians from things like the collection of mobility data. And we're not just talking here, the government of Canada, Big Brother. You know, it's contracts with companies uh, in this case, being Blue Dot and TELUS, who collected this information uh, for the government and then turned it over to be hacked for evaluation. And they, you know, assured committee, uh, of course, that they um, only provided to the government the broad sweeping scopes of that mobility data without, you know, defining who individuals and where they're moving. Uh, but at the same time, you know, committee is going to be, you know, on the recommendations when you read it through, we 
we're overly cautious to make sure the privacy rights of Canadians are first and foremost in the definitions and in the, the amendments made to existing law so that, um, you know, the government will have to inform Canadians when their privacy is going to be tracked. And that yeah. uh, is, is so important uh, if we're going to have any legitimacy to uh, public policy. What do you face as the committee in terms of what the government is saying back? Are they giving it the we have never been we had never been in this scenario before we were building the spaceship as we were flying through space? Is there is there a little bit of that at play? I mean, it was, as we've said so many times over two plus years, unprecedented uh, what we were facing in the moments of of these systems being put in place. Is there any um, sort of uh, mea culpa or accountability in, in that regard from the government? So, you know, if, and Minister Duclos, uh, Minister of Health, you know, appeared at committee to try to, you know, justify the use of the government's uh, need for this data. And, um, you know, Health Canada um, said through the Privacy Management Division of the department that they made sure that everything was, um, you know, pretty much anonymized and stripped of all identifiers and coding that would link it to individuals. Um but the thing that raised red flags with committee is that they did that as a department and sure they may have a privacy management division, but at the end of the day, they still didn't ask the privacy commissioner for input on how to de-identify mobility data. Uh, we weren't very satisfied with the response we got from the government on this. And that's why we made as many recommendations as we did. I, I think the total was like 24 uh, or 22 <clears throat> recommendations. And that um, just speaks to what needs to change if we're going to re- protect the in- individual movement of Canadians. The missteps are very clearly laid out, and it's something that Canadians need to very much pay attention to, what is happening with this uh, committee uh, and and where we need to go from here. We appreciate you uh, giving us some of your time today. Thank you for this, James. Anytime. Thanks for having me on the show, Jody. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith. And I'm a mom, and I had the question asked of me uh, not that long ago, actually, by my son. Mom, what do you want for Mother's Day? I want to sleep in. I want a cup of coffee delivered, maybe a little breakfast, not too early. Uh, What are you doing for your mom this Mother's Day? A lot of people on a super tight budget were taking your buzz lines on affordable ideas on how to make mom's day. 604-331-BUZZ is the number to call. Leave us your idea. Maybe you have a cool tradition that you do with your mom. Or as a mom, what would you like for your family to do for you on Mother's Day? 604-331-BUZZ, 604-331-2899. Leave us a voicemail message and we'll play them at the end of the show. This next conversation, I'm really looking forward to this. It's a, it's a discussion that's happened in my circle of predominantly girlfriends. Um, we call it kind of being sober curious. I've got one of my very best friends who decided to just, you know, stop drinking. Not that she had a problem with alcohol. She just found that she didn't feel great, even if she had one glass of Prosecco. And so she decided to just, you know, bail on it and and not really announce it or, or make it a thing, but just, just 
tested it. Sober curious, she called it, as I said. And then she found she felt so much better, sleeping better, anxiety levels were lower, stress felt, you know, more manageable. And there was this sort of conversation about, you know, a shift. And lo and behold, there is a rather large shift that is going on as we all reemerge from remarkably odd times of the last two plus years. And, and that go home, stay home mentality, we are feeling that shift towards maybe exploring sobriety. Uh, sober curious, as I said it, but there's many terms for it. A mini sober revolution is what our next guest has referred to this as. We're joined by Veronica Valley, a psychotherapist and sobriety coach and leader in the field of alcohol recovery. Veronica, welcome. Hi, good to be here. I want to dive into how uh, you got involved in this sort of lane specifically. Well, I've been sober for 22 years now. I got sober when I was 27, and it kind of not only gave me my life back, it gave me a career. But I remember, I mean, getting stopping drinking at 27 is pretty young. And I remember thinking that my life was over. Like, I was never going to have fun again. I was never yeah. going to belong. I was never going to, like, my life was going to be very dull and gray and boring. And the reason that I... I wasn't happy about it, but I was accepting of it. it was because alcohol caused so many problems in my life. I had a lot of anxiety. Panic attacks were really common. And I believed that my mental health would be better. So I grudgingly accepted it. Well, boy, was I wrong. I, I By the time I was 28, I was doing all the things that you would do at that age. I was going to parties. I was going to clubs. I was going to festivals. And I was doing it all sober. And they were all better. And that's when I saw that really the, the information that our culture, that our peers give us about alcohol, it's, it's really about perception versus reality, that our perception of what alcohol brings us and our perception of what sobriety is, is, is really screwed up. And, and really since then, I've been, that's my mission to, to not tell people that alcohol is bad for them. It is. It's really bad for you, by the way. But to actually show them that an alcohol-free life is, is really nothing like anybody uh, imagines it is when you drink. Right, because so many people think, well, that's a punishment. That's a societal, yeah. social punishment, right? <laughs> yeah, and it's so crazy to me now. But I, I thought, you know, what we're, uh, alcohol assault is sold to us. And I mean this not just through the, the, the alcohol companies, but um, also culturally. It's sold as a benefit. It's really sold. We're convinced right. it's the best way to enjoy ourselves, relax, and have fun. But nobody tells us about the cost. So, um, yes, you can, of course, have fun drinking and relaxing and socializing. However, there's always a cost to that, um, be it money, be it time, be it hangovers, be it that very small quantities of alcohol significantly raise your risk of cancer. Um, th there's a cost that we just minimize and don't talk about that. But, but what nobody told me is I can have all of those things. I can have fun. I, I can do all of those things. And I don't need to drink, so I don't pay the cost. And that's mm. the bit that I want to present to the world. That's the bit that I want people to know about, because it was mind-blowing for me when I found that out. And Veronica, we're, I should reiterate, just if somebody's just tuned in, Veronica Valley is a, a psychotherapist and a sobriety coach and a leader in the field of alcohol recovery. I want to go back to what you said off the top, one of the reasons why you 
shifted to sobriety was because you were having the anxiety attacks and the panic attacks that often aren't associated with alcohol use. People often think that that's what's happening to them and they, then they self-medicate with alcohol to sort of dull that, not knowing that they're feeding into what could be, uh, you know, the root problem here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I, um, really didn't uh, realize that when uh, I was drinking. I I definitely used alcohol to manage my anxiety. And um, now I've been sober for a long time and I've worked with so many clients. That's really, really common. uh, Lots of people use alcohol to manage it. But it's just like putting gasoline on a fire. It just makes everything worse. Um, but we get kind of stuck, trapped in this place where, you know, lots of people have social anxiety, you know, and, and alcohol just takes the edge off of all of that. But then there's this huge price that we have to pay for it. So it was, a, it, I, I didn't, I, I, it never occurred to me that you didn't have to drink. I just thought I had to figure out a way to manage it better. And that's what people do. Usually for a decade, the research shows, is if we, we, we spend 10 years trying to manage our drinking, manage it in a way that I can have all the things it promises, but not the cost before people get to a point where they realize maybe I just can't drink and they feel like it's the worst thing that's ever happened to them. And it's actually the best thing. I'm probably going to win the award for most often asked Veronica Valley question. (laughs) Uh, I apologize in advance. How does one know if they have a problem with alcohol? You know, that's a really good question. I'm glad you asked it because it's an important one. So I, uh, this is what I tell people. People with an alcohol problem do four things. They drink. They think about drinking. They think about not drinking. And they recover from drinking. And those four things are what adds up to an alcohol problem. So, for example, people who don't have a problem with alcohol don't do dry January. It just wouldn't occur to them. They just, they just don't. When it's the thinking about not drinking that is the biggest indicator. So, you know, um, people who don't have a problem with alcohol, they think about alcohol the same way I think about sandwiches. I might have a sandwich for lunch today and it'll be nice. I'll enjoy it. And then I might have a salad tomorrow. And maybe at the weekend I'm at a party and a plate of sandwiches goes by and I think, oh, I have a couple of those and, and I enjoy them. And then a bit later the sandwiches go by again and I go, no, I'm good, thanks. That's literally how much I think about sandwiches. People yeah. who don't have a problem with alcohol, that's how they think about alcohol. They have a glass every so often, they drink it, they enjoy it, and really think about it. It's the space it rents in your head. That's the red flag that something is amiss. And, and that's when I would encourage people to get curious and to ha- perhaps kind of, I, I have a book out at the moment called The Soberfall that, that kind of explains all of this. Get curious. But the big thing I want them to know is if you decide not to drink, you don't miss out on anything. One of the hashtags right. I use on social media a lot is um, we are having more fun than you are because uh, a sobriety, uh, that's the biggest thing is people think they're going to miss out. It's completely untrue. That is so fascinating. I know the one thing that you said in there as part of a larger picture jolted many of our listeners that, that mm-hmm. dry January is actually a flag. Yeah, yeah. I had mixed feelings about it because I actually have a lot of clients who actually that's how they got sober. They did dry January and, and they just kind of continued. But all this mm-hmm. kind of sober October, dry July, all of that kind of stuff, 
if people who don't have an issue with alcohol, they just would, it would never occur to them to do that because they just right. they think about alcohol the same way I think about sandwiches. It's it's the, the space it rents and the energy it takes up, which then is kind of ridiculous that you're spending that much energy arguing with yourself about whether you're going to drink or not, right? There's way more Mm -hmm. important things to do. Jody Vanson for Mike Smith, continuing our chat with psychotherapist, sobriety coach, author, and leader in the field of alcohol recovery. Veronica Valley is our guest. Uh, Veronica, I want to get into once you decide you want to give up alcohol, where do you begin? You know, the first, the most important thing is, is don't do it alone. It it it, it, it feels very hard in the beginning. Um, and that's because we just live in such a wet world. And it feels like one of the most common things people say to me when they get on a call with me is, but Veronica, everybody drinks where I am. Or they say, mm. but in my industry, people really drink a lot. And I always say, yeah, that's true of everywhere. But I also want to say, Actually, in all communities, there's actually lots of people who are sober and who don't drink. So don't do it on your own. Find a, I, I have um, an online community called Sober for Life where with people all over the world where we have meetings and support and all of that kind of stuff. And then there's, there's lots of, there's a wonderful organization in Canada, actually, it's funded by two Canadian women called She Recovers, which is a organization that helps uh, uh, women in sobriety. So there's, there's tons of help there in real life. Um, Uh, online, don't do it alone because uh, there's a lot more to this than just stopping drinking. And what people discover is it's not just the quitting alcohol. It's that we've often defaulted to alcohol to meet our emotional needs. So we stop drinking and then we just kind of don't have actually a lot of personal development skills that we need to to begin to navigate this world. So a lot of my work is, is helping people uh, deal with their feelings, deal with emotions, deal with other people, lots of skills that we kind of miss out on on learning because we've defaulted to alcohol. Soberful. You're all about a soberful life. And there are five yeah. pillars. Before we let you go, can you just give us a, a, a hint as to those? Yeah, the five pillars of sobriety, and, and this is personal development work, is movement, connection, balance, process, and growth. So moving your body, having meaningful, genuine connection with yourself and other people, balancing your needs, process is processing your past, understanding why you are the way you are, and growth is being open to all of the opportunities that sobriety gives you. So if somebody has given up alcohol, been sober for some time, then the old term falls off the wagon, what's your Mm. best advice to them? So we get sober by putting weight on the sober end. And if you imagine drinking is just a seesaw and one end is alcohol and the other end is sobriety, if we just continue to, we don't believe in in relapse. I like to reframe it. There's no such thing as failure, only feedback. So what did you learn? Like there's some great feedback there. What what can we take from that? And what we can take from that, we put on weight on the sober end. Weight on the sober end is working a program, the five pillars, connecting with other sober people, making different choices, all of that will eventually add up so it embeds itself in the earth. Soberful is a book that is on pre-sale right now, or is it out now? It's come out now, right? It was yeah, coming it's out in January, now. Yeah, so yeah, it's out, yeah, it's out yeah, there. It's okay, out I'm just looking yeah. at your website and I'm like, wait a minute, it's yeah. not January, it's May. <laughs> Soberful, <laughs> uncover a sustainable, fulfilling life free of alcohol. And where can people find you? Uh, it's uh, veronicavalley.com? 
Uh, yeah, soberfull.com. Um, I'm on Instagram. It's Veronica J. Valley. And I have a free Facebook group as well, which is just called Soberfull, which I put a lot of uh, resources in there too. Amazing information. I know we've helped at least one person by having this conversation on the radio, and I so much appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. That's Veronica Valley, psychotherapist, sobriety coach, and leader in the field of alcohol recovery. If you ask yourself, should I check my amount of alcohol I'm consuming? You likely should. So consider that. And then consider looking deeper into being sober curious. I opened up the phone line, 604 280 star 9898, a free call on your cell. If you have a story to share or a tip to give, feel free to call in now. Let's go to Robin in Langley. Welcome to the show, Robin. Thanks for hanging on the line. No worries. Thanks, Jody. Um, I am three years sober almost, um, and literally it was the best thing I've ever done in my life. Um, I was, you know, the recreational drinker and having fun, and it was always a part of every part of my life. And literally the best thing I did was go into an AA meeting and say, you know, I need some help. I've changed my life completely around. I bought a house. I found my dream partner. Um, I got my real estate license. Like everything has changed and I've never been happier. So if you're questioning it, do it. (laughs) Congratulations on that. Now the tipping point for you, was there, was there a a moment in time where you said, you know what, I got to go? Yeah, I actually, I actually just separated from my son's dad and, you know, I was at a point where I was a single mom and I said, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. I can't, I have to be there for my son. And so I am, I showed up and now I have two stepdaughters and a son and life's never been better. Well, congratulations for that. And I appreciate you sharing your story, Robin. One more thing, if I could interview you just a bit, is there one tip, one thing that helped you in the early days as Veronica was pointing out, like it can be difficult off the top. Did you lean into something that knowing what you know now, when you look back, do you say, I wish I had known that going in? Yeah, just taking it one day at a time. And that's a big thing in our community is one moment at a time, one day at a time, one event at a time. And don't look at it as if it's forever. Um, Just look at it as just for today. Excellent advice. Thank you for calling in, Robin and Langley. We appreciate you tuning in and calling in and sharing what is quite personal. I very much appreciate that. Hi, I would like to ask the question about Mother's Day. Um, How do people honor the mothers that are no longer with us? Um, I'm having a hard time with that and just wondering how other people are are managing that. That is a caller to our buzz line today, and we're going to get into that. Sunday is Mother's Day and not celebratory for lots and lots of people. Mother's Day after you've lost your mom, heartbreaking. Or if you dream of becoming a mother but struggle to conceive or carry or have suffered losses and miscarriages, What do we do when a day that is supposed to recognize and celebrate motherhood can also be super painful and bring out maybe some anger, resentment, sadness, all of the emotions? Well, our next guest is here to help, and we will be taking calls on this subject over the course of this next half hour. We have mind-body health specialist, registered therapist, an author and speaker, a good friend of the program, Michelle Cambolis, joins me now. Hi, Michelle. Hi, thanks for having me on, Jody. 
I'm so glad you're here. Um, you know, I've talked openly about my struggles to conceive and Mother's Day being very, very difficult for years mm-hmm. for me. Multiple miscarriages. I have a beautiful IVF boy who's now taller than me. Uh, my miracle. Uh, not always a miracle for everyone. And uh, right. I always do take a moment on Mother's Day to acknowledge what that felt like and still feels like for so many. How do we, how do we help like the woman who just called on the buzz line there? So many people have lost loved ones. Uh, over this pandemic, adding extra stress, stress, anxiety, and sadness to this? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, I so appreciate you talking openly about the fertility struggles that you went through, because I think that's something that a lot of women battle with. Um, I know I certainly did. And um, Mother's Day can be a painful time for so many, and, and it often centers around grief and loss. So, fertility issues, but also um, the death of your own mother, the death of a child. Um, We know that 55% of single mothers and their children are living in poverty. So while we're celebrating, we often forget just how many people are facing very painful feelings at this time. And you know, grief is one of the hardest things that we that we go through, and and it isn't predictable, it isn't linear, and it really has its own timeline. Um, so when grief hits, and often it is around these anniversary events like Mother's Day, it's so important that we pause, we leave room for it, we listen to it, and and tend to it. And you know, we can talk about some of the ways to do that. I'd like to talk about some of the ways to do that. And just before we do, though, some people will want to talk about it and others will want to not talk about it. How do we test the waters on that? Yeah, it's really about um, taking those cues from the person that might be struggling and, and just simply asking that fundamental question of how can I help? How right. can I help? And, and so for those that don't want to talk about it, maybe it's a nonverbal gesture, sending them a gift or flowers or a note, expressing your care is a really beautiful way to, to just let them know, I'm thinking of you, I'm acknowledging your grief, and I'm here when you're ready. It's very important to acknowledge that. One of the things that I struggled with most was the, oh, I'm so sorry, that didn't help me when, when mm-hmm. I was struggling, you know, on Mother's Days uh, for a number of years. Um, because I do talk openly about the struggle, the fertility issues, that it was widely known. I preferred it when somebody said, listen, want to go for a drive? Let's put the windows down and feel the wind through our hair and turn up the music. And if you want to talk, you can. Um, that was easier than um, the, the sympathy feeling. You know, what I, you know what I mean? Yeah, sympathy can feel really condescending. And so, I mean, you're naming what helps for so many, which is really just time together and the ability to just appreciate any bit of happiness that we can in the moment. And that might be something really simple, like, yes, the wind on your, on your face, going for a drive, walking in nature, um, and um, just really, you know, being in the moment with one another. And if we're able to do that, really meet each other in the moment compassionately, then intuitively, we can read cues and kind of understand what's needed at that time. Right. Lighten the load just a little. Now, for someone like the woman who called in our buzz line there and said she's really struggling facing Mother's Day, she's lost her mother. What tangibles 
could you give her to do for herself? If, if she's just got herself uh, to lean in on, um, what's your mm-hmm. advice? Yeah. So I think really just pressing pause and, and doing the things that you know to um, be self-supporting. So whatever that might be for you. And, and, and we're all unique in terms of the kind of uh, self-care that we might need. So if that's going for a walk, being outside, having contemplative time and really thinking about our loved one, um, sometimes it's a matter of uh, really uh, thinking about any unfinished business and how we can get closure around that. And you can do that through journal writing. You can do that by just imagining that person and, and having a conversation with them in the here and now. I mean, the thing about the mind body system is it doesn't associate healing with time. So you can go back into those moments that were really difficult and give yourself what you needed at that time. And the body actually feels that as, as present time healing. So that might be, you know, a bit to get your head wrapped around, but it really works after 25 years of working with clients in therapy to just go back to that younger version of yourself where you were really struggling with the loss of a loved one um, or whatever it is that you, you may be grappling with and just, you know, talk to your younger self. We are going to open up the phones uh, on this in the next segment. If you've got a question for Michelle Cambolis, if you want to talk through um, your scenario, uh, we will line things up on the phone board at 604-280-9898 or star 9898, a free call on your cell. But Michelle, before we go to break here, um, When it comes to that, you know, trying to circle back to your younger self and and somebody feeling like, I can't do that, I don't know how to do that, reaching out to someone like yourself, the the accessibility of of therapy or speaking to a medical professional, even in this crazy time we find ourselves in, does it start with going to a GP? Is there a resource that that people can, can tap into? to find their way to someone to just talk it through with or give them the skills that you're referencing? Such an important question um, because navigating the mental health system can be very difficult. So, um, and it's hard to reach out to help for help. So Mm. start with a visit to your GP. If you have one, Uh, if not try a walk-in center and they should have a list of mental health resources that you can uh, connect with. There are private mental health resources um, that are are quite readily available. And sometimes it's really helpful just to talk to family and friends to find out, like, who have you leaned in on? Uh, Do you know any mental health support people or psychologists that that are really good? It can be helpful to just um, have that personal referral. And so, and, and your doctor can, can certainly refer you. If you're struggling financially, there are community mental health centers that you can access. And again, your GP will have a list of those. So, and if you do not get the response that you want, and it's minimized, because that does happen, um, yeah. go to another person and another person after that and, and do not stop knocking on doors until you have the right support in place for yourself. What are the right words to say to your physician in order to then access the mental health supports that you need? Because oftentimes 
people don't know what to say. It's like, I'm fine, but I, I just, I feel like it's hard or, uh, you know, don't really know how to articulate it. Before you see your doctor, it can be really helpful to do a personal audit and ask yourself, how am I really doing? What does my sleep look like? How is my appetite? Am I having somatic problems, headaches, stomach aches, chronic pain? Do I have a sense of dread? Am I thinking about the future in a fearful way oftentimes? Mm. You can just go through that symptom list, write it down so you've got that in your hand when you go for that appointment and go down the list of your concerns and make it really clear to your physician, I'm asking for help and I insist. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith, and we are continuing to discuss how Mother's Day can be emotional and not in a good way for some of us. Uh, Michelle Cambolis is a mind-body health specialist and registered therapist, uh, author and speaker, and she joins us to take your calls now. If you are struggling with Mother's Day, or even if you have a coping mechanism that has worked for you, we'll take that as well. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898, a free call on your cell. And Michelle, you're ready to go? Absolutely. All right, let's dive in. Don and Surrey, you're up first. Welcome to the show, Don. Uh, thanks. Uh, good morning, ladies. How are you doing today? Good, thank you. How are you? Doing well. Um, good, good. Uh, not doing too bad myself. Um, just want to let you know, my mother passed on Mother's Day, 2016. Um, so this uh, is quite a poignant uh, anniversary. Every year comes up, and uh, you know, um, my siblings and myself, we all uh, struggle a little bit with it. But as time goes on, uh, we try and look at the positive memories and stuff that we had of of mom. And, uh, I mean, she was a very dynamic single mom raising four kids, so um, she was definitely a big part of our life. And, uh, you know, on a daily basis, there's there's a time when something comes up, and it's a reminder. And I think that uh, we just have to realize that we're still here, you know, and uh, we have the memory. Mm -hmm. And if... um, if somebody's feeling really down about it, sure, you know, it's, it's great and it's okay to miss somebody and wish they were here, but you can still talk to these people. Um, saying that, the hardest part that I've found is there were so many unanswered questions that you'll never get the answer from that person. And uh, so keep the communication open while they're alive and um, just um, reflect, you know, it's, uh, it's a good thing that, um, you know, we keep our positive side going. And it's okay to miss them, and it's okay to cry now and then, but uh, I think that um, we have to carry on, you know. What a beautiful call, Don. Wow. Beautiful call. And, and yeah, I so appreciate so so much of what you said here. And, you know, Don, as you talk about your mom, there's this sweetness um, that comes through, and, and I just have this sense that, um, she was very loved. And so the fact that you and your siblings are able to come together and share in that grief and, um, and think about all of those really beautiful moments that you shared uh, together. Um, and then this piece of advice around having mm. conversations while our loved ones are still here is just so meaningful because um, we really want to 
absorb as much as we possibly can while we're here together. And then that carries us through when we're, when we're facing loss. Let's uh, go to Shauna in Kamloops now. Shauna, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hello. Do you have a question for Michelle? Hello. Welcome. Oh, hello. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm struggling because of uh, the death of my husband on January 11th, 2022. It's very painful. And it's the first Mother's Day I've had without him. So I'm struggling with having to face all these holidays, etc., Mm-hmm. And he's no longer here. We've been together since 1988 for 34 mm-hmm. years. Would have been on on May 14th. Would have been our anniversary. So mm-hmm. it's just it's really it's really tough. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I have a lot of dark days mm-hmm. where I struggle just you know to put a smile on my face. And it's just him not being here. Yeah. Oh, Shauna. I'm so I'm so sorry to hear about um, the death of your husband, Shauna. And um, I guess I mean when I hear about the level of pain that you're going through, which is um, just so natural um, as you're kind of in the early stages of the grips of grief. Um, my next question is always, what supports are in place for you for you now? I have a lot of family support, friend support, and I'm going to be seeking counseling so we can deal with Good. this as a family. Yeah. I have a son and a daughter, yeah. and we found him. He had an aortic dissection, so yeah. when he passed away, he was only 55. Oh. So when we, um, my daughter found him, oh. and uh, we tried really hard to bring him back but it was uh, unfortunately he's already he was already gone and uh, we've tried very to perform traumatic. yeah we performed CPR on him and that oh. and then the ambulance came and it was just so when I do think about him I only see his it sounds morbid but I see his dead body so I don't see him like he used to be he was not such a, a kind and loving man yeah so it was very Shauna? dramatic and very sudden, which adds yeah. a whole other layer. I'm so glad that you're that you're reaching out for therapy, which can um, really go a long way towards um, processing not only the grief but the trauma. And yeah. um, and I hear some real courage in your voice. Well, thank you, Shauna. I, I want. Can you email me Jody at cknw.com? I want to connect you and Michelle. Uh, after this phone call, because we are out of time for this segment, but I, I cannot tell you how much your phone call is appreciated, and you have helped others who are dealing with this grief, like you are. So thank you for doing this today, Sean. I appreciate you. We appreciate oh. you. Okay, sure do. Stay on the line there. Tim French will take your number from you. And Michelle, thank you for your time today. We have so many callers on the line. We definitely need to do this again. People want to talk with you. Michelle Cambolis is always my friend. You are a touchstone. Well, thank you, Jody. And yeah, anything we can do to help. Um, so let, let's, uh, let's, let's do this again. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith. And I got to tell you, I'm still kind of resonating with both Dawn and Shauna calling into the program in that last segment with Michelle Cambolis. And for those who have lost a loved one and are, uh, are struggling this Mother's Day, um, we're, we're here for you.
And I'm I'm so grateful to both Shauna and Dawn for calling in and sharing that personal story in, in such a way, uh, really impactful stuff. We've been talking about it in the commercial break, our team here, of uh, just how powerful that was uh, to hear and our gratitude to Michelle Cambolis uh, for lending her ear and her advice. And just so you know, I did get Shauna's number and I sent it to Michelle. So we are connecting the two of them. I want to connect with uh, a good friend of mine, somebody, in fact, who was the first person I spoke to when I realized that I was struggling with infertility when I had had my first miscarriage of three and was struggling to become a mother. And we talk about this openly at this moment because Mother's Day, as we were mentioning in the, in the prior segment, can be very difficult for huge swaths of society. We all know someone who has struggled with conception or maintaining a pregnancy um, and, and Dr. Al Uspi is literally the foremost expert on this, and we are so lucky to have him here in British Columbia. He's an infertility expert. Dr. Uspi is the co-founder and co-director of Olive Fertility Center, uh, Canada's most senior reproductive endocrinologist. He has been involved in IVF for the past 30 years and in the field of infertility for the past 43 years. And I called up Dr. Al to see if he would join me today. And here you are. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be able to bend your ear. Thanks, Jody. It's always a pleasure to be on your program and to talk with you. So I want to do just the basics with you today, Dr. Use P, because, you know, when I first phoned you, it was a mutual friend who said, you should talk to Dr. Use P. He's the guy. Find out what's going on. And you said, don't delay. Take action. You need to t- get tests done, blood work done, and find out where you're at and, and really start to figure out what your struggles are. So when, when does one know, when does a couple know, or, or an individual who wants to have a child on their own, um, really know that they should be reaching out to someone like the team at Olive to, to find out if, if fertility or infertility might be an issue for them? Well, uh, that's a good question. It's something that confronts women on, on a regular basis. The first thing uh, that uh, uh, many women expect is that uh, the first time they try to get pregnant, they'll get pregnant because if you don't use contraception, we've always been telling women you, you'll get pregnant. And uh, yeah. that was uh, with the issue uh, related to, to birth control. But it, uh, fertility doesn't work that way. Fertility is, uh, or the frequency with which a woman will conceive, is uh, is statistically not a a great number. Humans are not great uh, reproducers. They're not like some of the animal species. For example, the chance of a woman conceiving uh, at uh, age 25 is about uh, 20 to 25% per month. And uh, if if one extends that out uh, beyond that, the chance of a woman conceiving at age 35 is only about uh, 20% per month. At 38, it's only about 15% per month. At 40, it's only about 8% per month. So women's fertility decreases over time as they age. And uh, it's not anything they do. That's a normal uh, process of the body. So if a woman is uh, uh, under 30 and is not conceived within 12 months, 
with regular uh, intercourse, then she should see her physician to see if there is something that's keeping her from becoming pregnant. If she's over 35, then she should uh, be more proactive. And I would suggest that at six months, uh, anyone over the age of 35, if they haven't conceived, should uh, at least uh, consult their, uh, their family physician to do some basic testing. Now, if you find yourself in a situation where it's like, okay, you're going to need some support and some help, there are other levels of help before getting to in vitro fertilization, the IVF that we often ref- reference um, as, the, as the last resort, if you will, of, of trying to conceive and carry to term. What are some of the um, entry level, if you will, I don't know what the right term is, uh, treatments that women might find themselves, because uh, some might think, I can't afford IVF. I know I can't afford that. There's no point in me even in trying to, to get, get support and help with my infertility. Jody, the majority of women who are having difficulty to uh, conceiving don't need IVF. IVF is, as you said, it, it's sort of the, the last stand, if you will, uh, or it's for, and especially for specific conditions. But, you know, there are many things that women fail to, uh, to consider. For example, a simple thing is the frequency of intercourse. So you can't have intercourse once a month and expect that today is the day and I'm going to get pregnant. If I don't get pregnant today, I won't get pregnant this month. It doesn't work that way. Regular unprotected intercourse is important. But there are other things. For example, if women have irregular menstrual periods, it's very possible that they might not be ovulating so that they can do some home testing to see whether they're ovulating. There are home kits that women could buy at the drugstore or on Amazon that they can do to test for ovulation. Uh, some women may have other pre, uh, existing conditions, and one common one is endometriosis, which is a gynecologic condition which could affect uh, a woman's fertility, a previous history of uh, pelvic infections, uh, pelvic surgery, uh, various types could all interfere with fertility. So if there's anything that that exists that a woman even wonders whether it could affect her fertility or not, it's worth consulting her physician to at least uh, get a, 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 a physician's opinion as to whether that's a factor or not. And, you know, we, one of the problems is yeah. that the male always escapes the uh, the equation. You know, men are, are yeah. not the greatest when it comes to uh, admitting that it, it may be, uh, possibly be related to a sperm factor, but that's an important issue as well. And there are other uh, general issues for men that, that are a problem. For some men, erectile dysfunction is a problem. For some men, um, uh, ejaculation is a problem. There are so many issues. And if anything, anything at all comes to the mind of the individual, that should be investigated. And there are resources available to do that in Canada. And more and more, the technology is meeting up with the support when it comes to our health system. There was a time where there was no support with 
infertility treatments. There are programs now uh, coming into play for those who would think that all of this might be out of reach for them. What is a good resource? Obviously, Dr. Usepi, you at Olive Fertility uh, Center, an ever-expanding group at at that because the demand is so high. Um, Where would people... Uh, maybe go to to do some due diligence and 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 look up what what is needed on their che- checklist of things to do. Well, I think the first thing is to get a physician's opinion, and uh, so family doctors are quite familiar with fertility issues as well. They may not want to treat some uh, fertility issues, but they are certainly knowledgeable with respect to what could affect fertility. So I think a consultation with a family physician, uh, whether that's your known family physician, whether it's a walk-in clinic, whether it's uh, through the one of the new health services that exist, uh, there, there's always somewhere where someone can, uh, can get some advice. One of the problems is that a lot of advice comes from uh, the internet and the internet is uh, is not always accurate. Sometimes it frightens people. Sometimes it uh, leads them into uh, becoming inactive when they should be becoming proactive, and vice versa. So I think uh, the internet is is fine to get some quick information, but nothing replaces a visit to the physician. Visit your physician and get your trusted resources on this. And certainly you have been one for me, Dr. Usepi. Thank you so much for being with us today and sort of laying the groundwork for some who might be struggling as we count down to Mother's Day and wanting to become one. I appreciate you taking some time. Well, thanks, Jody. And I have to thank you for all that you've done and the work that you do for making it a topic of discussion Uh, this, this is uh, fertility problems are not rare. One in six couples on average will have difficulty conceiving and you brought this into the uh, forefront and I commend you for that. So thank you for that. I appreciate that very much. That statistic is awe-striking. One in six. Dr. Al Usepi, we'll talk again, sir. I look forward to it. You take care. And you too. Thanks, Jody.